This is former New York Jets defensive lineman Mike DeVito, and you're listening to Play Like a Jet. From Joe Namath's Super Bowl guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee it. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo Elliott. This is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it, and it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene, it's time to play like a jet. Play like a jet? What does that mean? With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparapolis. Welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason, alongside my tag team partner, 6'2", 265 pounds, and the former, future, and soon-to-be, never-ending, biggest badass world champion of the world. Yes, I said world champion of the world. You're welcome, Christopher Daniels and Frankie Kazarian. Mr. Big John Spiropolis, what's going on, John? Scotty, I'm doing fairly well, and I haven't said it recently, but boy, is that the best intro in the business. Thank you again. I do what I can, John. I do what I can. And since I'm in the business of doing what I can, what I can do, of course, is congratulate you on your latest accomplishment, which is realizing that your dream may not be over, because I believe you told me before we started recording that you were thinking about making a comeback. Now, I should specify that I have no idea what this comeback is or what this dream supposedly is. You just told me that your dream may not be over and you're making a comeback. So whatever that is, congratulations. Oh, Scotty, I appreciate it. Uh, All I can say is uh, wish me good luck. I will indeed, and I will wish you plenty of luck after we speak to Wesley Walker for part nine of this discussion on his career in the NFL, all 13 years of it with the New York Jets. We've gone all the way up through 1986, so we're almost at the end of his journey, John. It's been fascinating. He's talked about racial divides in the locker room, injuries, problems with coaches, feuds with other players, all kinds of inside dirt that you don't normally hear from people outside of a tell-all book. So it's been one of my favorite series that we've done so far. And because Wesley had such a lengthy career, there's so much to cover. And each week it feels like we're building momentum and it's getting better and better and better. Yes, Scotty, absolutely. Uh, As a great coach once told me, we are matriculating down the uh, field. We are indeed. We're going down the field at a lightning frenetic pace, and we're not stopping until we hit the end zone. So with that in mind, John, what do you say we go talk to Wesley Walker for part number nine of our discussion on his lengthy career in the NFL? Uh, Jeez, Scotty, I'd love to, but uh, I'm still working on that dream of mine. 
John, I know you didn't want to share exactly what that dream was, but you're going to have to now if you're going to duck out on our interview. What's going on here? Scotty, I have a uh, personal coach coming to uh, work me out in a private workout. Scotty, as we know, uh, training camps will be opening up very soon, and I'm going to take one last crack at being an emergency field goal kicker. Ah, like your old days in high school, you were the third string kicker, and you were also the backup blocking tight end. So now I guess that you've decided that your physical prime is behind you in terms of trying to be a tight end. You think that that old leg of yours may have a little something left in it, huh? Yes, Scotty. I was going to give tight end one last shot, but then some guy I named Jason Witten decided to come out of retirement. So I figured my tight end window was closing. I got one last chance to uh, use this big leg of mine. Well, John, let's make the most of your last chance. I'll let you go ahead and do that. You go try out to make your NFL dream a reality. I'll talk to Wesley Walker, and we'll meet back here. How's that? Scotty, as always, that sounds like a plan, and I'll talk to you soon. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Wesley, last week we left off at the end of the 1986 season and the heartbreaking loss in the playoffs at the hands of the Cleveland Browns. The next year was 1987, and this was a weird year because you were looking to build off of that 10-6 and season, a season where both you and JoJo thought that there was a good chance that you would go to the Super Bowl. But it's a weird year because this was a year that wasn't a full season due to the player strike. So I want to get your take on this because at one point you were a player rep, so you have a unique insight. What were your memories about the player strike? And there were some guys that did cross the picket line, including notably Mark Gastineau. Was there real animosity towards him for doing that? Did the other players get hey, upset? It was Mark Gastineau, it was Marty Lyons, it was Joe Glecko. We all decided to stay out as a team, and it was just very disheartening. I, I never had any problems with Mark Gastineau because he was very adamant that he didn't want to be involved, and people don't know this. Freeman McNeil didn't either, but he stayed out because that's what we agreed upon as a team. There was a very big split on the team. Uh, uh, Greg Buttle and Kenny Schroyd quit as union reps, and 
and I don't even know. I remember uh, talking to Marvin Powell. Well, if you do the rep thing, I'll I'll I'll, I'll be the assistant rep, not knowing everything. And it wasn't until I went down to Washington to tell them what it what had happened with our team. Our two captains, Greg Buttle, Kenny Shore, uh, quit on us as union reps, and I didn't want to do it. I want to find what the issues were, and I got close to Gene Upshaw, and I started getting the information. And obviously, as a uh, a, a player, that some people don't feel like their their jobs are on the line because there's a lot of free agents that they went on strike, they would lose their jobs. And as far as I'm concerned, I was going on strike for the little free agent guys trying to make it better for all of us, but a lot of the guys didn't feel that way. There was a big split. Everybody was out for themselves, and God, I just remember it just being a big split on the team, and then we had guys that came in that cross pick and line were just trying to make a little bit of money that knew they weren't going to play, because I remember Derek Gaffney and some of the other players, and I always respected the free agent guys that may not have gotten an opportunity that even got jobs after that, but the guys that knew that they didn't even they weren't even thinking about uh, being on the team. They were just trying to make a buck that uh, that was been in the league a long time, but just trying to. I remember Derek Gamble said, "I'm going to try to make some money to put my pool in or whatever." <laughs> that was a joke to me, you know, that people would not care about the fellow man or would try to make it better, and that was very disheartening that we had a lot of selfish people because they could care less about the team, about uh, what we were trying to do as a contract, as a union. It was just about themselves, and there was a big split on the team. And uh, there was a lot of animosity that happened to come up, and uh, and that really uh, kind of uh, split our team and blew us apart. We talked about the players that crossed the picket line, but did you have animosity for the replacement players, or did you see it from their perspective where as much as it annoyed you because they were hurting your strike, it was the only opportunity they were ever going to get most of them to play in the NFL, and so you understood why they were doing what they were doing? Yeah, I, uh, I'm very realistic, and you try to understand both, but you, you try to understand what we were trying to do. And so, you know, for the guys that would maybe, uh, you know, be in the bubble and, and may not get the opportunity, so you kind of understood that. But as a whole, you have to look at what we're trying to do as the unity of the team. And I would think that those same guys would get the same opportunity uh, knowing what we had to do as a team. And that's why the owners knew that guys are not going to stick together. And, and you do that in numbers. If you if you really want to stand up for something, you got to be on the same page. But knowing that guys are split like that, there are going to be a certain number that are not. And they know how to divide that up. And they're going to use that. And it's just a shame that people don't understand it for everybody. And whether it's a free agent or a guy that's not getting an opportunity, if you guys do this together, you're going to get what you need to get, but you have to stand up for it. And and they know that their guys are going to come in there for the money, and there's going to be a split, and they utilize that. And that's a shame that we cannot all be on the same page where we can work together. But I, I certainly understood that little guy that may not get the opportunity that, hey, he may get a job uh, 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 with the team uh, by doing that. 
Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Now, for you personally, this year was a bit of a rough one. You caught four passes in each of the first two games before the strike, but only one catch after that, and you got hurt again. In fact, you separated your shoulder on November 9th and ended up missing the rest of the season. This was your 11th year in the league. Another major injury, as you said, you had struggled to stay healthy your whole career. Was this when maybe the seeds were starting to get planted in your head, like, hmm, this might be toward the end here. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. You know, I never thought about that. Um, the only time I ever really thought about what when it's time to really hang it up is when I uh, spoke to my doctor because I had a very serious nerve and neck condition. And I really didn't even think about that even after I retired in 89. Uh, Bud Carson was with Cleveland, and he called to see if I would be interested in, uh, you know, coming to their team. And I actually thought about it, and I went to my doctor just to see, and he's like, I've been telling you for three years, you have a chance on being paralyzed. And that's where I had to make the real decision with it. But you never think about that. Uh, you love the game so much. And, uh, you know, obviously I had to think about my health at the time, but not knowing what really is at stake. And you, I think you have in your heart, you know kind of what's happening and you're, like, trying to get through it and can I really play. But I had to make a conscious decision. Am I really going to hurt myself? Do I really want to be paralyzed? Or what am I really doing? And I love this game so much. But I really had to confer with my attorney agent, and then I went to my uh, doctor, and when he said, like, for three years, I've been telling you, you could be a, uh, take, you're taking a chance on me, I'm paralyzed, you know. To me, that's not even worth it. And here I was lucky enough that I played three years, but as I talk to you, I'm lucky I'm not in a wheelchair at this point with my condition that I did have, and you love this game so much. It's your job. You know, you try to make the money for your family, but you're really taking a chance, and you don't really know how serious it is. And if I would have, let's say, played and I would have gotten hurt where I couldn't walk or be paralyzed, I would never forgive myself. I don't know how I could have ever dealt with that. And that's a, really a stupid thing to think about. And when I look at what I feel, and I'm, I'm coming home today thinking about, God, I feel so awful. I, why did I play this game? There's no way I would want to be like this. And that's just the way I feel. And there's a lot of guys that are in my position that don't feel like that. They would still play. But if, if, if I have to feel like I feel now, I wouldn't want to be like this. And I would change it, and I wouldn't do it. But that's me. But not everybody feels that way. This year in 87, it ends with a disappointing 6-9 and nine record. At this point, how disappointed are you based on what you'd done in 85 and 86, had been looking to build some momentum, and in 87 you go 6-9? and nine. How disappointed are you overall? And I know you've talked about not really being on the same page with Joe Walton once he became the head coach, that he was a different guy from when he was the coordinator. How disappointed were you 
in Joe Walton as the coach at this point in not being able to get the most out of everybody in a season where people were expecting the Jets to build on those two previous playoff seasons? Yeah, it's it's really disappointing when you lose. And I think the fact that uh, Joe Walton and my relationship like changed, and it changed with a lot of players. And when he first, and I, I was just talking to Bruce Harper, and everybody says the same thing, he was great when he was just the coordinator, and I know that he tried to take over so many things, and he ran everything. And uh, Richie Kotite was our supposedly coordinator, but he didn't run the coordinator. Joe Walton called all the plays. He ran all the meetings. Uh, Richie Kotite would go over personnel, that type of thing. But Joe Walton tried to control everything. When he, Joe Walton first got there, I mean, I loved him. His speeches, he motivated me. And, but the one thing that bothered me, he let other people, uh, like, for instance, even with me to a certain degree, uh, the trainer or somebody may have an idea about me instead of getting to know me uh, and evaluate me on a personal basis from what he saw and not uh, taking somebody else's opinion without getting to know me. But he changed as a coach, as a person, and uh, a lot of people lost a lot of respect for him. And uh, it wasn't until I remember I was retired watching a story, and, I mean, he was getting dogged by the fans, and I remember they did this documentary, and they showed his wife, how his wife, and bless her heart, she passed away at Kansas, he's remarried. And I just talked to him just the other day, not too long ago, but I remember, and I told him, I remember as much as I disliked him and just wasn't into him, Nobody should have to endure and go through what he had to go through with the fans and people spitting on you and doing certain things. And but people lose it as a as a coach and uh, they change and and I don't know how they. I remember talking to Walt Michaels. How come you can't be like you are now, being retired, talking to me? You would go through a wall for this person. And they think they have to be a different type of person. But that year, we lost a lot of respect for each other. He may have had a, a certain respect that he had for me that he didn't have. Whatever reason, I, you have to talk to him. But he tried to control everything from the secretary to the building, and it just got lost in the shuffle, and people didn't even want to hear what he was saying anymore. And it's a shame because he wasn't like that when he was like the coordinator. And I, I would run through a brick wall for this guy. But it, that's what happens, and things change, and it also happens when you start losing. Everybody uh, has their own way of handling certain things. I know even when Walt Michaels was the coach, he thought he could get rid of certain coaches or, you know, you can just replace people. We had the core. But you have to have players and coaches together on the same page and somebody that can motivate you and coach you and get you to another level. And we lost that, and uh, I I lost that with Joe Walton my last year with Joe Walton. You know, I remember coming to the back of the plane. I was sitting right in the back of Al too, and he's talking to Al and didn't even say a thing to me, and I didn't care to say anything from him. But that's just the way it is. But uh, and we didn't have any success, whatever the reason. But that's just the business. But it's a shame it had to be like that. And uh, I always had a lot of respect for Joe Walton. But as a team, and uh, as the years went on, a lot of people lost a lot of respect for him. I know Joe, uh, Greg Buttle hates him. You won't even talk to him. You know, can't stand him. Every chance he gets, he says something negative. I can't be like that. Even though 
uh, Joe and I may have had a difference of opinion, but I know the type of quality that he brought to the team, and he just couldn't hold it over the long term. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. We'll get back to Joe Walton, certainly, and the things that you mentioned happening toward the end of his run. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about 1988, which was a weird year. The Jets were in transition. There were a lot of things that needed to be changed, including the offensive line, which had been depleted, and the secondary. So the Jets go out, and they pick a bunch of new guys in the secondary. They picked three guys in their first four picks in the secondary, and the other one was an offensive lineman in Dave Cadigan. The defensive backs that they picked were Eric McMillan, James Hasty, and Terry Williams. Terry Williams ended up getting hurt, and he was a non-factor. But the other two guys ended up playing very well for you that year. And this was a strange year because people were expecting the team to finish in dead last, but they outpaced most of the predictions. We had Eric McMillan on to talk about 1988, and you can go and check that in our archives. And one of the things he talked about, and I want to run this by you and see if you remembered it, you played the Oilers in week three and beat them really badly, 45-3, but there was some yep. scuttlebutt about the Oilers and how dirty of a team they were and how there might be some sort of physical confrontation in that game, and there was, and we'll get to that in a second, but legend has it, before the game, on behalf of the players, you went up to the coaching staff and said, look, guys... There's a possibility that a brawl may break out based on how dirty the Oilers are. We want to know if you'll cover our fines if things get hairy, and supposedly the coaching staff says that they will. Do you have any memories of this? Yeah, they had no problem with that. That's a hush-hush thing, and we didn't care because I remember they came in with this house of pain crap, and uh, and, and, and I will never forget this because Altoon had gotten knocked out of the game, and, and and, and I've seen Al Toon take some hits where I would never want to be hit like that. And I remember saying, dude, I do not want to get hit like that. I've seen him get Cleveland get his tooth knocked out or head, his eyes rolling back in his head. He got knocked out that the game. And and for some reason, I don't know what happened. I was MVP of that game, and I was pissed at freaking – there was another thing with Richie Coltad and Joe Walton because I think they were – I was getting older, and they're trying to weed me out. And Al got knocked out of the game. I became the star of that game. But I remember they came in, and we weren't going to take any crap. And maybe they thought I was washed up. And I remember, and, and I had some conversations even to this day with Chris Dishman, who played. And I didn't think they just underestimated us and maybe my speed or whatever and Kitty O'Brien. But we lit it on fire, and we just, I don't even know what to say. We were just on fire, and I, I, I laughed to this day because, here it is, we have an opponent didn't respect us, and then I felt like my own coaches didn't respect me, especially after Al Tuna got knocked out of the game or uh, with with my abilities and what I brought to the table. But I couldn't be more than happier, and that was uh, a year where I was um, 
I thought we were going to go on and do something, and then we kind of like took a, a like a skid, or we, we didn't materialize after that. But I was happy the fact that as a team, I don't care what circumstance you're in, you know, we were going to come to play, and we played that day. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Do you remember the brawl? Supposedly, according to Eric McMillan, James Hasty got things going by picking a fight with Ernest Givens, and according to Eric. The team looked lifeless, and so Hasty just went over to McMillan and said, Hey, Eric, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start a brawl and I'm going to fire the team up. It ended up with all these guys getting fine, players ejected, so on and so forth. Pretty much exactly what you had expected before the game, and that's why you'd approach the coaching staff. Do you have any memories of how this all went down? I don't, I don't have memories of that, but I expected that, and that's the way some you know team members, and I'll have to be honest with you, like, I'm a very, you know, you, you go by the rules type of guy. And, I mean, if somebody's going to disrespect me, then I'm all in. But to me, that was a defensive part of the game, and that's what they had to deal with. And, you know, and, and, and certain coaches are going to, like, lend a deaf ear to certain things. And I, I'm not sure that we were even aware of that. Maybe defensively they were aware of that and they let things take place. Because there's a lot of things that take place during training camp where I know coaches would encourage fights or you have to start something to try to get people going like that. Uh, but I would think that was part of that defense with Eric and Hasty and those guys. Because my thing is my thing is offense. I'm, I'm here going against their defense. So I, I, and I was never that type of player that I'm going to try to instigate like a fight or whatever, but if if I'm going to retaliate, it, it, it would be because somebody did something towards me, and I didn't have that problem during that time, but I'm sure the defense did. I want to talk about what was arguably your signature play of that season, and it was later in the year against the Lions. It was a 17-10 victory for the Jets, and there was a play that ended up being the deciding play, and it was called the Waggle X Special that Joe Walton called. And essentially what this called for was for the offense to move to the left, O'Brien to move in that direction, looking towards Altoon, but Altoon would be the decoy, and you would be off to the right by yourself, and O'Brien would hit you for the touchdown. And that's exactly what happened. Do you have any memories of this particular play? Was it something that you guys practiced? Well, it's, I wouldn't even say that it was like, a, you know, because I always felt like a, I could be a decoy for Altoon. Altoon could be a decoy for me. But if you, when you when you look at the certain formations and certain things we did, and that was like a waggle. You, that's just simply a play action, and it has nothing to do with anybody or their focus or whatever. Uh, it's just a because your running game is so good. Uh, that's what the focus. is. It's almost a, a play action where you can fool people. And then you just do your job. And uh, Al Toon was very good at what he did. I was very good at what I did. But it's the way you set up things. And, and, and it has to do with the team. And that's where people don't really understand. It's just not one player. It's just how you set up the situation. And uh, when you have a good running game, which we did, and any time we had a, a formation, and the waggle is just to get tricking uh, uh Kenny O'Brien out and in this game, but he had a two-way go where he could go to Altoon or myself, depending on who's open at the time. 
So let's move ahead now to your game against the Miami Dolphins. Before that game is where one of the biggest storylines of the season happens. We've talked about Mark Gastineau quite a bit. And at this point, in the middle of the week preparing for the Dolphins, he decides he's done. And the reason he gives is that his fiance Brigitte Nielsen, has uterine cancer and he wants to be there for her. Turns out that actually ends up not being true, but we later find out the real reason that Gastineau stepped away is because he feared a suspension from another drug test because he was using steroids. Do you remember the locker room reaction at the time? Uh, I mean, we're all like, you know, for me, look, I, I look at it, you know, I don't judge people. And I was probably one of the few that looked at Mark Gaston, hey, he's got to do what he has to do. And I remember that coming out uh, with his, his uh, girl at the time with the uterine cancer, and that was fine. And I know a lot of guys were pissed that he even quit on the team. Uh, it wasn't until, uh, I don't even know how much time went by, but there was a documentary in and this friend, uh, girlfriend of mine and showed me this documentary where Marty was coming out, lying, saying there was this whole thing, there was an interview where he was going to be busted with the, uh, you know, steroid abuse or whatever. I don't know would that to be true or not. And that has to bum you out. And if, if you're putting that uh, or, or something before the team, and, and you have to understand if. Uh, I mean, if if it was my wife, you know, and certain things you had to quit for, then you understand that. But if it was something else other than that, and you're hiding things, and that's what you don't know, and I can understand why a person would do that, but you don't know. With me, I didn't even judge it either way. I didn't even know. But when you think about it, and when and knowing Mark now with certain things that are going on, Sometimes he can come off as being not a great guy. And so I, I could understand how Marty and uh, Leco, uh, they had an animosity, but I watched the way they treated him, which I didn't respect. And so he never knew what was going on. Like, I understand now how Mark could be, but I, I didn't understand how those guys would treat Mark. And so Mark would cry the blues, so you kind of understand it. But if he... But if he wasn't really being forthright and being honest with the team, then that I have a problem with, and that's what you don't know. And, then, and looking back on it, I certainly didn't know you're taking his word for his value. But if he lied to us, you wouldn't have respect for that. And to this day, I really don't know. And all I cared about is what I had to bring to the table, what I had to do. And regardless of whether Mark couldn't make it or whatever problem, hey, I got to do what Wes Walker has to do for this team. and and. And that was, as far as I'm concerned, the team was first. But with Mark, that's a whole different thing, and I can't judge that. I don't know what his story was with it, and that's the shameful part of it. But regardless if it was the story used or his girl, they're very legitimate reasons, and that's what he had to deal with. But I don't look at it as um, him letting down the team. Or There's a lot of guys that play in this league that, for taking steroids or they do something or some guys take over-counter stuff and they get suspended. They don't mean to do it, but it just happens. We talked steroids earlier, but with Gastineau, I asked Eric McMillan if there had been whispers in the locker room about Gastineau taking steroids because, as you mentioned, he was a freak of nature. Eric said he didn't really remember it, although he wasn't totally shocked when it came out. Yeah, but the thing is, it shouldn't be shocked, but he wasn't the only one that was doing it, so... 
I can't go by that. I, I could care less of what he was doing. But there was a lot, a lot of those guys, a lot of our superstars, they were all taking it. And it's just the NFL itself. Guys had to do it to compete with on the NFL level. And that was just the bottom line of it. Were there whispers in the locker room about Mark specifically at this point, though? Absolutely. I mean, do you look at him or whatever? But we knew that other people were doing it. It was admitted. We had a coach that, our, our strength and conditioning, who, I mean, gave me a book on all the positive uses of steroid use. And, and I can't really say anything bad about it because it was legal. We didn't, when I first got in the league, first it was a pot, and then, then it was the cocaine, and then it was steroids, you know, and it, it was, came in a cycle, but it was legal. So what difference does it really make? And a lot of guys were using it to be in order to compete. Probably would have tried it myself if the, if the guy said I, I didn't have to shoot myself with the needles. I guess it's one of those times where fear of a needle really helped you in the long run. Right? I'm not doing it. I'm still afraid of needles. I wouldn't do it. But we all I remember Marvin and Paul. Maybe we'll try it when we're like 36 or something, you know? But when he said shooting it with a needle, forget that. There's part nine of our in-depth discussion on the 13-year career of Jets legend Wesley Walker with the man himself who has given us some incredible stories over the entirety of this series. And we're going to wrap this up before training camp. We're almost at the end. He was so generous with his time and willing to talk about everything, as you could tell, in incredible detail. This is fantastic stuff. May have to try and turn it into a book at some point. But another thing we may have to try and turn into a book at some point, an inspirational tale, if you will, is the story of Big John Sparopoulos attempting to keep his NFL dreams alive one last time with an attempt to get a tryout and perhaps make a squad as a backup kicker in the NFL. John, you weren't able to sit in on the interview because you said you were going to go work on this dream and try and put the wheels in motion and make sure that you trained properly and gave it your all. What's going on? Bring us the latest. Yes, Daddy. Uh, luckily, I've met some friends throughout the years of doing the show, and I uh, reached out to our close friend, Rex Ryan. Uh, he had such a good time at my 4th of July barbecue last week. He promised me, hey, if you ever want to try to come back, let me be the first person to help you. So I uh, worked out with Rex for a little bit, but uh, during uh, just during some light stretching, Scotty, I heard a couple things uh, pop and crack. You mean like snap, crackle, and pop from Rice Krispies? Uh, Scotty, I uh, wish that was the case because, uh, Scotty, only me and my luck. Uh, apparently I tore my ACL, MCL, PCL, and... Uh, my Achilles all at the same time. All at the same time? Oh, my God. Where are you right now? At the hospital? Scotty, I'm laid up on my couch just coming back from surgery. Scotty, they said I'm out 9 to 12 months at least. It's the fastest surgery I've ever heard of. Yes, yeah, Scotty. I've uh, been to the hospital a few times with all these stories, as you uh, can remember, I'm sure. I guess they gave you VIP access because of all the times that you've wound up there as a result of something that you've tried in service to this show. Well, John, I hope you recuperate okay. Is Tiffany taking care of you? Does she have all your favorites there? She's got your shows on the DVR and the food ready for you to consume? 
Of course, and she made sure to bring me over some Papa Murphy's. John, I want to fly down to Dallas and elbow drop your cast right now for that comment. I went on a whole rant about Papa Murphy's. I think it was like last year when we first talked about it. I went on a whole rant recently also when I was on vacation because I saw a Papa Murphy's. The whole concept offends me. I know you're pushing my buttons, and it worked. Because if there's one thing that gets under my skin as a New Yorker, it's the concept of Papa Murphy's. We make it, you bake it. Which, in other words, is code for we take 25-cent pizza dough, throw some sauce and toppings and cheese on it, and then you go home and cook it in your conventional oven, which is not meant for it. It's meant for a pizza oven, and it's going to taste at best like a DiGiorno, which you could have bought for half the price at the supermarket. So anybody that's a big enough sucker to buy that, whatever, you get what you deserve. John, I truly hope that she's not actually feeding you Papa Murphy's. If you're lucky, she's going out and getting you Papados or something like that. Yes, Scotty, I, even with the amount of uh, hospital visits, I haven't been upgraded to the one where they have an oven in the room. Yeah, that would make it exceedingly difficult to cook Papa Murphy's because you need an oven and you need a pizza oven more specifically, and you wouldn't have either one of those in a hospital room or at home. So either way, point being, Don't eat Papa Murphy's, and John, I hope you get better soon, especially since next week we are going to have part 10 of our discussion on the career of Wesley Walker, and I know that Bart Scott is really looking forward to that, aren't you, Bart? Can't wait! Bart, we're so close to training camp, can't wait until you and Maggie and Chris Carlin are broadcasting live from Jets training camp. I'll be honest, I actually just want to hear you. I don't particularly care what Chris Carlin and Maggie Gray have to say. I'm sure they're nice people and all, but mm, their opinions on football don't mean much to me. Before we go, a big thank you to our producer, Alan Schechter, deputy editor of JetsInsider.com, for being able to help us get Wesley Walker and, of course, compile the research necessary to do all nine of these parts. And, of course, more of it will be coming your way next week with Part 10. That's going to do it for us this week. My name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Sparopoulos. And John, I believe you know there's only one way that we can end this show. Yes, Scotty, a pleasure as always. Luckily, I'll be a fast healer so I can come up with another excuse for next week. Break, break it down. One, two, three. In the home of the Jets.